Would you turn with me to one of the most romantic books in the Bible, and that's the book of Ruth in your Old Testament. So if you're used to turning to Acts, go way left and go about a mile down the street. If you go to Judges, you've gone too far and you want to backtrack. If you've gone to 1 Samuel, you've got to keep going. It's in between Judges and 1 Samuel, the little book of Ruth. Over the years, there has been several television programs on famous families. Families like the Brady Bunch, the Waltons, the Adams Family, and who can forget the Beverly Hillbillies. Now, I know I'm dating myself by just sharing those TV shows because I don't know of any modern families. I don't see it all that much. But those are sort of the famous families that I remember watching on television growing up. Well, here is a story of a family that could have spawned a television series that I would have entitled The Prodigal Family. The Prodigal Family. It has all the intrigue, drama, and romance of a modern television series. Of course, with one great exception. This is real. And it's clean. But it's a story of a family who made mistakes. They were given choices... And some of the choices they made were not the best choices. In fact, the name of this message is The Prodigal Family. And we'll look at their choices this morning. One of our most precious commodities is choice. We do it all day long. Whether it's small things or there's mega choices. We all make them, sometimes successfully, sometimes not so successfully. Like Fred, story of a man who received a $10 million inheritance. How do you like to make choices based on that amount in your checkbook? Ten million bucks. Here's the story. The will provided that he had to accept it in Chile or in Brazil. Unhappily, it turned out that in Chile, he would have received his inheritance in land on which uranium, gold, and silver had just been discovered. Once in Brazil, he had to choose between receiving his inheritance in coffee or in nuts. He chose the nuts. Too bad. The bottom fell out of the nut market and coffee went up to $1.30 a pound wholesale unroasted. Poor Fred lost everything he had to his name. He went out and sold his solid gold watch for the money he needed to fly home. It seemed that he had enough money for one ticket, either to New York or to Boston. He chose Boston. When the plane for New York taxied up, he noticed it was a brand new Super 747 jet with red carpets and chic people and wine-popping hostesses. The plane for Boston arrived. It was a 1928 Ford trimotor with a sway back, and it took a full day to get it off the ground. It was filled with crying children and tethered goats. Over the Andes, one of the engines fell off. Our man Fred made his way up to the captain, and he said, I'm a jinx on this plane. Let me out if you want to save your lives. Give me a parachute. The pilot agreed, but he added, On this plane, anybody who bails out must wear two parachutes. So Fred jumped out of the plane, and as he fell dizzily through the air, he tried to make up his mind on which ripcord to pull. Finally, he chose the one on the left. It was rusty, and the wire pulled loose. Then he pulled the other handle, and the chute opened. 
but its shroud lines snapped. In desperation, the poor fellow cried out, St. Francis, save me! A great hand from heaven reached down and seized the poor fellow by the wrist, let him dangle in midair. Then a gentle but inquisitive voice asked, St. Francis Xavier or St. Francis of Assisi? (laughs) Now in the first seven verses of Ruth, we have a whole range of choices that this family has to make. First of all, we have Elimelech. He's the husband. He's the man of the home. And he makes a choice to leave Bethlehem and go down to Moab. Then there's the choice of his wife named Naomi, who chooses to stay there. Then we have the choice of their two kids, Malon and Kilion, who choose to marry foreign wives outside of the covenant of God. Then finally we have the choice in verses 6 and 7, of Naomi to return back to the land. We want to follow these verses this way. We want to look at a nation, a man, a family, and then this woman. We're going to look first of all at a nation and its problems. That's Israel. Then we want to see a man and his family, his decisions. A man and his choices. Thirdly, we want to look at a family and its heartache because of those choices, then finally we want to close with a woman and her hope as she goes back. Let's pick it up in verse 1 and read the first few verses. It came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore she went out from the place where she was, and her daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. First of all, we see a nation and its problems in the first verse of our text. Any good reporter tries to cram as much information as he can in his opening line. The Holy Spirit, being a good reporter, gives us a lot of information about what is happening at the time. First of all, uh, it says, when the judges ruled, in verse 1. It was a time when the judges ruled. This is a time of national rebellion. It's a time of apostasy. It's a time of idolatry. It's a time of oppression. Sounds like a modern newspaper headline, doesn't it? The time of the judges actually does closely parallel our own days. What happened is this. Oppressors that surrounded Israel would come in and attack. Groups like the Philistines were there. The Amalekites were there. Moabites, Midianites, termites. No, I'm just kidding, just to see if you're awake. A whole bunch of enemies came in and attacked the land. And so what God did is give them times of rest by raising up leaders, military leaders, lawgivers called judges. 
The judges would rally the troops, fight the enemies, deliver the children of Israel. But it was only temporary. It lasted for a while, and then the nation sunk back down to a low point in the relationship with God. It's called the sin cycle. And I want us to look at it. If we turn back to Judges chapter 2 for just a moment. Beginning in verse 10. This is sort of a summation of the history during the Judges. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, that is, they kicked the bucket, they died, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which He had done for Israel. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, false gods. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said and the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods. They bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way which their fathers walked. In obeying the commandments of the Lord, they did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, delivered them out of the hands of their enemies all the days of that judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass, when the judge was dead, that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doing nor from their stubborn way. Now, basically, this is what happened. Here's the cycle. They're in the land. They forsake God. God forsakes them. They're in captivity. The the enemy oppresses them. When the enemy oppresses them, they get spiritual. They cry out to God. A judge is raised up to deliver them out of the hand of their enemies. They're happy again. They're prosperous again. They forget God again, and the cycle continues. That's the sin cycle. It's a very temporary kind of a thing. I hear a lot of talk and a lot of messages today about revival and the need for revival in our country. And let's pray for revival. Well, that's true, and I would agree with that. Let me say, if you want to see revival, you might want to pray that God's people would be taken through the fire of affliction. You will see revival when that happens. See God's people afflicted and go through the fire of suffering for a while. They will cry out to God strongly and take God seriously, as they did here during this cycle of sin. So it's a black time of their history. It's a dark time. It's a time when the nation turned from God. And as you read through the book of Judges... You get awfully depressed on one hand, because it's just the cycle of failure. On the other hand, however, you get very encouraged that we serve a God that is very patient with creeps. That should encourage you. It encourages me. Every now and then I'll meet a person who will shake his fist at God or say 
things to God that ought not to be said. Challenge him. And I always like to step back a few feet, thinking that lightning will fall from heaven and consume them. But it never does. It never does. God is always patient, even with people like that, as he was with Israel. God introduced himself to Moses as the Lord God, full of compassion, a gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. It's a story of God's grace in the midst of this time. So, it's the time of the judges. You should also know that this was a time preceded by prosperity and blessing. The time of the judges, it wasn't always like that. If you would look back in their history, they had been afflicted for 400 years. God sent Moses, and they were brought through a wilderness for 40 years, and they were brought into the promised land. Joshua brought them in. As soon as they got into the land, after all of the 40 years of wandering and the 400 years of oppression, they started settling down in territories, and God prospered them. But they became complacent in their prosperity. This is a land of milk and honey. This is a land that brings rain down from heaven. And they started getting complacent in the blessing of God. And it says in Amos chapter 6, Woe to you who are complacent in Zion. I grew up in a middle class American home. I took a lot for granted. Uh, My parents provided clothes, food, shelter. And I took it for granted until I moved out of the house, paid my own rent, couldn't afford a house, just an apartment, had to buy my own clothes, had to cook my own food. That was interesting in and of itself. It was either a can of chili or a box of hamburger helper. And I had taken all those home-cooked meals for granted for so long. I become complacent in the blessings. I think that times of prosperity are more dangerous for a person than times of adversity. More have fallen in times of prosperity than have fallen in times of adversity. Now I want you to turn back to another text, and that is Deuteronomy chapter 8. Just keep going left till you see Deuteronomy. Camp at chapter 8 and look at a few verses. This is a warning now. God is telling the children of Israel, look, you're going into a land. Be careful when you're blessed in this land. Verse 7. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs that flow out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines, fig trees, pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which He has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments, His judgments, His statutes which I command you this day, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, When your herds and your flocks multiply, your silver and your gold are multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, when you say, or when your heart is lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Verse 17. Then you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand has gained me this wealth. There is always a danger living in a time 
of prosperity that leads to complacency. And this was the era right before the time of Judges. Because in their complacency, they just sort of dwelt on the trivial and they forgot God. They didn't get serious with God any longer. I'd like to read to you a short quote from a book called Run with the Horses by Eugene Peterson. He observes something in American culture that I think is very accurate. He says, The puzzle is why so many people live so badly. Not so wickedly as much as inanely. Not so cruelly, but so stupidly. There's little to admire and less to imitate the people who are in prominent positions in our culture. We have celebrities, but not saints. Famous entertainers amuse a nation of bored insomniacs. Infamous criminals act out the aggressions of timid conformists. Petulant and spoiled athletes play games vicariously for lazy and apathetic spectators. People, aimless and bored, amuse themselves with trivia and trash. Neither the adventures of goodness nor the pursuit of righteousness get any headlines. That is happening in our country. Blessed, complacent. And that was right before, in Israel's history, the time of the judges. Now go back to Ruth, and we find that this time for the nation was also a time of moral anarchy. They were very loose morally. Go to the verse right before the first verse of Ruth which is the last verse of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There's no leadership, there's no absolutes, there's no parameters. This is pure classic existentialism. This is what happens when the Israeli ACLU took over. This is what happens when a nation forsakes any restraints of God and decides to do its own thing. This is when personal rights are more important than national good. Everyone does what is right in his own eyes. Now what's ironic is the more freedom Israel had personally, the more in bondage it became to its own desires. The more you do as you please the less you are pleased with what you do. Freedom without any moral constraints. There's no leader in Israel, no defined king, and everyone did what is right in his own eyes. I think that's an accurate description of today. A book that I have read and quoted to you by James Patterson and Peter Kim called The Day America Told the Truth, they observe this. Americans are making up their own rules. Have you noticed that? We make up our own laws. Only 13% of us believe in all of the Ten Commandments. 40% of us believe in five of the Ten Commandments. We choose the laws of God we want to believe in. There is absolutely no moral code or moral consensus in this country. We are a law unto ourselves. That's the time of the judges. We see that because of that, it was also a time of famine for the nation. We read that in the first couple of verses. Elimelech is in Bethlehem, and the nation is undergoing a time of famine. In the Bible, there were many causes for famine. Drought, pestilence, enemies who would come and besiege cities or steal food supplies. But sometimes it was directly as a judgment of God. 
See, God told them back in Deuteronomy 8, Obey me, love me, keep my commandments. I'll bless you in every regard. I'll bless your going out, your coming in. I'll bless you in the kneading troughs. I'll bless you in the kitchen. I'll bless you in the fields. Your crops will be more than you can handle. But forsake me, disobey me, and I will shut up the heavens, and it will not rain, and that which you have for food will dry up. I'll send a famine. And that is exactly what is happening in this time. During the time of the judges, it's a time of famine because judgment has come upon the land. So, that's the first part. A nation and its problems. Let's look now at a man and his mistakes. It came to pass in those days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. A certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab. His wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. The name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. They went to the country of Moab and remained there. Now we're introduced to some people. And names in the Bible are always interesting. Because when somebody was born and given a name, they were given a name, number one, because it was the parents' reflection of who they believed God to be. Number two, they would give a child a name based upon the condition at birth of that child. So we look back in history and we remember when Isaac had his two sons, Esau and Jacob. He named them after their birth. Esau means hairy. Because when Esau was born as the firstborn, he came out all red, filled with blood. And he was a hairy kid. And so he said, look, we have a hairy son. Let's call him Harry. Esau. The second son that came out, came out grabbing the heel of his brother Esau. And so his dad said, let's call him heel catcher. That's what Jacob means. Yaakov, heel catcher. Now, the names Malon and Kilion reflect what is going on at their birth. Malon means sickly or weakling. Uh, Kilion means pining or crybaby. Folks, these are honest parents. I think every young parent I've ever met has this morbid fear that somehow their kid is going to turn out ugly. And to tell you the truth, I haven't really met beautiful newborns. My opinion is that, oh, that's neat, you had a baby, but it's, isn't my baby beautiful? Well, (laughs) sure. It takes a while. Now, I don't know that Malon and Kilian really were sick, weakling. They could have been. But could this be perhaps just the reaction of dad as the kids came out? I remember when my son was born, I thought, all I need is a Chiquita sticker to put on his head. I mean, his head was so elongated like a banana. I thought, oh my goodness, what have we done? It scared me. See, I'm an honest parent too. But I didn't call my son Chiquita. It could be that Naomi had those kids and he saw them as they were born. He thought, oh no, it's happened. Well, we'll call this one Sicko and we'll call this one Crybaby. That was their name. They had to live with that for their whole life. Malon and Kilion were their names. The mistake that he made in verse 1 and 2 is that he went to Moab because there was a famine. Limelech looked out. 
He saw the fields of Bethlehem and the terraced hillsides where the olive trees and vines were to grow, and it was parched, and his goats and sheep were dying. And yet he could look over if he turned around across the Dead Sea about 40 miles in the horizon and see the green slopes of Moab, a land that is about 3,500 feet above sea level. And as the wind goes across the Mediterranean and clouds build up over Israel, it often dumps 16 inches a year on the plains of Moab. And the western part is so beautiful for grazing and for raising crops. And he saw his own land. This is the house of bread. That's what Bethlehem means, the house of bread. And yet there's no bread here. But if I look across the Dead Sea, I see green hills. And the grass looks greener on the other side. And so I'm going to leave this land of Bethlehem, and I'm going to go over to Moab. However, for an Israelite to go to Moab was not good, because Moab was under the curse of God. They were outside of the covenant promise of God. Moab started when Lot had an incestuous relationship with his daughter. The descendants were called Moabites, and they dwelt on the other side of the Dead Sea. Also, God said, you will exclude Moabites from your worship system, even down to the tenth generation. The spiritual climate was bad news. They worshipped a god called Chemosh, and they worshipped by child sacrifice, killing their own babies at the altar of Chemosh. Well, here's a guy who is willing to sacrifice the spiritual climate for his family just so that he can have a little more to eat. He can be a little bit better off. He made a carnal rather than a spiritual choice. Now, there's an interesting verse in Psalm 108 where God talks about the nations and he says, Moab is my wash pot. Moab is my wash pot. A modern equivalent might be Moab is the trash can. Interesting that Elimelech would leave the house of bread, God's covenant land, and go, because the grass looked greener temporarily, over to eat out of a trash can. Spiritually he did. Does that sound familiar to you? Wasn't there a guy in the New Testament who left his father's inheritance and wanted to take it? And he went out to a foreign country and spent all that he had on riotous living? Until he ate pig food and he came to his senses and he said, Man, this is ridiculous. I'm, I'm out of here. I'm going back home. It's called the prodigal son. Well, this whole family did that. It was the prodigal family. And to apply that personally to our lives, whenever we attempt to satisfy the spirit, our spiritual needs, with the resources of this world, we are going to Moab. We're going to Moab. Now look at his name. His name is Elimelech. And I'm drawing attention to his name because he didn't live up to it comes from two Hebrew words, Eli, my God, and Melech, which means king. His name meant, my God is king. It's a beautiful name, but he didn't live up to it. Imagine how it would sound as he goes over to Moab. And they say, hi stranger, what's your name? And he says, my name is, my God is king. Oh really? Well, if your God is king, what are you doing here, pal? How come your God isn't taking care of you over there? He testified with his feet, though he had a name on his lips, but he testified with his feet that God wasn't taking care of him. And so he's going to take matters now into his own hands. Now you might read this and say, Skip, give him a break. Tough times call for tough measures. 
No, tough times call for tough faith, tough trust. I'm going to cling to God's promises regardless of how it looks on the outside. Oh, I'm going to use my noggin to make good choices. But I'm not going to leave the place God has put me for this kind of a choice. Now, our text says in verse 2 that they were Ephrathites. I draw that to your attention for this reason. Whenever the term is used like that, Ephrathah was the district of ancient Bethlehem. But to use the term Ephrathite was a term of royalty. It meant that he lived a certain kind of a lifestyle being a noble person from this district. Sort of like if I was to say, which I am not, by the way, that I say, I am a direct descendant of the first family in Boston, Massachusetts. Or to say, I come from the long line of Rockefellers. Which meant, if he's an Ephrathite, Elimelech was used to sort of being pampered, being looked up to, being respected, and having a high lifestyle economically. And the clue is this. One of the reasons, perhaps, that he left Bethlehem isn't just because there's a famine in the land. After all, a lot of people stayed there. They suffered it out, and they made it through. But he was accustomed to being looked upon and respected and being pampered. And he wasn't getting that now that there was a famine. And so to maintain that lifestyle, he decided to go to the other side. So he was willing to sacrifice spiritual climate for financial gain. Great name, bad actions. Now we have the name Christian. What a great name. Follower of Christ. Little Jesus. But I fear that many who take that name do not grace the name by their actions. But they drag the name down by their lifestyle. Nine out of ten Americans say they believe in God. Nine out of ten Americans say they pray every day. Seven out of eight Americans say they're Christians and belong to a Christian group. Yet many times it's name only. It's all show and no go. Let's say you had a brand new Ferrari parked in your driveway or a Porsche with no motor. You got it for a song because there's no guts in it. But man, it looks so spiff out in your driveway. You polish it up and it's got that name, Porsche. And people go by and go, whoa, cool car. And you talk about it and you show it off. And oh yeah, this is a great name, long-standing performance. You'll get away with it for a while, but one day your friend's going to say, let's take it for a spin, man. Oh well, there's only one problem, no engine. No engine? Well, what good is it? Well, it's a good name. It gives me a reputation. All show, no go. If you ever travel to Hong Kong and go through the marketplace, especially at night, the night market, they sell name brands that aren't really the brand itself. It's just the name is on it. So you can buy a Rolex watch for 10 bucks. You can buy Guest Jeans and Ralph Lauren Polo and all of the little name brands, but they're like a buck or two per shirt or per jeans. It's not the product. It's just the name that they pirated and put on there. And you know that because after about two days, the thing becomes unraveled and you say, I've been ripped off. The little tag falls off because it was just glued on temporarily. It's just a name. Elimelech, what a marvelous name. But he voted with his feet, God hadn't taken care of me, I'm out of here. 
Now thirdly, let's look at a family and its heartache. In verse 3, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left. And her two sons. Now they took wives, the women of Moab. Now these are foreign wives. They were commanded not to take them in the Old Testament. The name of one was Orpah, the name of the other was Ruth. They dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died. So the woman survived her sons, her two sons and her husband. There's a lot of heartache compressed in those verses. A lot of heartache. I'm sure when they got to Moab, it was great. They thought, man, we finally have done it. Settled into perhaps a four-bedroom tent, two-camel garage. (laughs) Maybe he joined the donkey lodge on Wednesday nights. And they thought, you know, we could have stayed in Bethlehem, but this is so much better. All those poor people that stayed behind, we made the right choice. Oh, this is the life. Then one day, Naomi got that phone call from Moab General that her husband died. And now she's a widow in a foreign land, comforted by her two sons. Oh, they were such a comfort at the funeral. They supported her. And after the funeral, after time went on, they married foreign women now that dad is gone. And they stayed there for ten years. But in the meantime, her two sons, Malon and Kilion, also died. Now you've got a woman in a foreign land who's a widow and has no children. And to a Jew, that's a curse. More than that, it meant something devastating. Because you see, the family name was in danger. There's no sons to pass on the lineage. And so the family name is in danger of being shriveled up completely and unheard of. And so... He made his choice. He went to Moab. And he died. His sons died. And his wife is left a widow in a foreign territory. All alone, bereft of the one she loved the most. Not only that, but it says that they stayed there ten years. That's a lot longer than they planned on, because up in the first couple verses where he went to sojourn in the country of Moab, the word sojourn means to lodge temporarily. It'd be like a guy going down a street and checking into a hotel every night. He doesn't plan on staying there ten years. He's in and out. They went to Moab, planned on staying there temporarily, but they got accustomed to the people. Life prospered them for a while. Married other women, so their roots now are going deeper, and they felt accepted. This is always what the devil tries to do with us. He tries to keep us longer out of the will of God. Just stay a little bit longer. And so, the couple that is dating, he takes her home in the evening. She says, come in. They sit next to each other on the couch, snuggly close. They started getting tempted. He has some kind of moral, so he says, I think I'm going to have to leave now. The devil goes, stay just a little longer. Just a little longer. So after a little longer, he gets a little more tempted and the voice again, stay just a little longer. Or a person who has a problem with alcohol, hangs out with his old buddies, he gets tempted. The devil says, stay for a little longer, just one drink. Or a person who has a problem with seeing women in pornography, channel surfs, and something catches his eye and there's that impulse. Watch this just a little bit longer. 
trying to draw you in and hook you so that you'll stay there for a long time. They were there for 10 years. Now, this is a lesson, I think, to any husband. As we are called by God to lead our families in righteous paths, no matter how hard it gets. Elimelech would have been better off suffering in God's country under the judgment rather than going over to Moab with the devil's crown. My point is this. The very worst that God has for you is better than the best that the devil has for you. And the problem is not seeking a better life. The problem is taking matters into your own hands and not consulting God and going in a different direction. Now, if the story ended here, it wouldn't be a book called Ruth. It would be part of the book of Judges. The thing that sets Ruth apart is that God overrules the mistakes and the sins of these people. The story begins with a mistake, but it ends in God overruling and taking one of these foreign wives and letting her be in the genealogy of Jesus Christ redemptively. And the great lesson that we want to leave today is a woman and her hope. How God takes her situation and completely overturns it. And we'll close with these verses, verse 6 and 7. Then she, that is Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore she went out from the place where she was, her and her two daughters-in-law with her. They went on the way to return to the land of Judah. She is a bitter woman. She says so in verse 20, and she comes back to Bethlehem. She goes, don't even call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because God has dealt bitterly with me. I'm a bitter old woman. But, after burying the three people she loved the most, she hears a remarkable rumor. God's back in town in Bethlehem. God has visited His people, the text says. The Hebrew word pakad, which means to deal graciously and lovingly with His people once again. And she hears that. And she says, what am I doing here? If God is blessing there, I'm going to leave and go back. This was good news to this old gal. When she heard that God had blessed, she thought, then all of these wasted years, I don't have to stay in them any longer. Yes, we failed. Yes, we've made some mistakes, but God is blessing once again, and I'm going to go get under that blessing. That's good news for any child of God who has left the will of God or the people of God and tried to go out on his own like the prodigal son. You may have taken a hundred steps from God. All you have to do is turn around and go right back to him. One step. The step of repentance. And verse 7 is an accurate description of repentance. Notice what it says. Therefore she went out from the place where she was. That is what repentance is. It's an about face. She went into Moab this way. She turned right around and went out that way after 10 years. She turned around and went back to where she had left years before. That's repentance. It's not enough to shed a tear and get emotional and go, Oh, I'm touched. You've got to do an about face and follow with your actions, going back to God and making Him the Lord once again. For the Bible says, Godly sorrow works repentance. Let me close by recapping these lessons that we've learned so far. Number one, if you define freedom as doing your own thing apart from God, it will lead you to bondage. 
I'm my own person, it will lead you to bondage. Secondly, a name is just that. A name. That's all it is. You might have the title Christian. It's just a name, and it's of no value unless your life is bearing out that name. Thirdly, you can run away from God's people. can't run away from God. It's not that God lived only in Israel. God was working in the land of Moab to bring her back. Fourthly, when you do run from God, if you make the choice, the poor choice, to go your direction, God's going to honor your choice. God may let you get scraped up. He did with Jonah. The prodigal son got scraped up. This family incurred some severe consequences. Because we need to learn that if we sow to the flesh, we're going to reap corruption. If we sow to the Spirit, we're going to reap everlasting life. But the final lesson is that lesson of mercy. You made stupid mistakes. God can override and overrule your stupid mistakes. He can bless once again. And then our response is to go back and turn around and get back to that place of blessing. There was a teenager in Switzerland who grew up in a Christian home, decided to rebel as a teenager. Familiar story. He said, I'm sick and tired of Christians. Tired of their Bible-thumping ways. So he decided to leave home. His mother wept as she packed up his bags. He took a train from his home, and as he was going on the train, right behind him were two people talking about the Bible. And he got tired of it. He said, I don't need this. And the first stop, he went into a restaurant. He went into a restaurant, and across the table, two old ladies were talking about the return of Jesus Christ. He said, I don't need this. So he got on a ship, thinking it was safe, and he's headed out in the water. He found out the whole boat was filled with a Bible team of kids going off to camp. He went to the captain. He was a little bit ticked at this point, and angrily he said to the captain, Where can a man get away from all these fanatics? The captain smiled at him graciously, and he said, Just go to hell and you won't find any Christians there. You want to get away completely from God's people? Well, just keep doing what you're doing. You won't find any Christians in hell. The good news is that you don't have to make that kind of choice. Wherever you are, you can stop, about face, and say, God, I've sinned. Would you take me back? I want you to rule in my life, and he'll take you back. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are gracious, that you forgive, and that you override even years of mistakes, even poor choices. You are able, from that point, if we turn to redeem the situation, to bring us back into blessing and favor with you once again. And I would pray for anyone who's come this morning who has left that place of blessing, who has left that covenant land, who have tried to be satisfied with the resources of this world system that is opposed to you, pursuing that greener grass on the other side. And they've come up empty. And today, Lord, you brought them here and you desire them at this point to get right with you once again, I pray that you draw them.